0: The Start on demand. on demand. Two people have died in a crash at Regent slash Naren After walking in front of a moving car on Tuesday, eyewitnesses shared the horrific details with Global News, which led us to ask you if you've ever seen a bad crash, and how it affected you, and if it still affects you. Depression could be the leading cause of disability by next year. Should mental health services be publicly funded? Many Canadians say yes. It's the 100th anniversary of Winnipeg's general strike, and we'll meet a fascinating author who shares an amazingly bad memory of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling, who's back from Europe, and Loren McNabb, who's back from working at home, and we are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. This is the Wednesday, May 15th podcast for The Start. this feels weird I've been used to being by myself for the bulk of the last 10 days in this room and now I've got two people with me greg Mackling is back i'm watching you man <laughs> lorene is looking at back. you with a
1: it's an interesting look i I'm can't it. i'm not leering it's not leering
2: <laughs> I'm admiring. It's, I was listening to the show yesterday. You it's guys sort sounded of
1: admirable. You
2: guys sounded so good yesterday. All I'm hoping is to come back and not step on anybody's toes. Just happy to be back with you guys. Missed you very much. Yeah,
0: we're happy to have you back. And McNabb's been working at home a lot for the last uh, couple of weeks. So while you've been gone, Greg, uh, and but it was funny because yesterday our boss. Was it yesterday or Monday? Her boss walked in and says, did McNabb like fly out of here the second you guys got off the air? And I said, she was never here, man. (laughs) She was at home. The magic of radio. Hiding
1: in the closet with a microphone, begging the kids (laughs) just to be quiet for a few more seconds. Quiet. We're just. You should. Sports. You should see me at 7:20 when I've been trying to get this down to a routine. I'm upstairs. I'm like, go, 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 and I'm yelling at them like that because you have six minutes. I'll be back at 7:45. You'll be eating your waffles at 8:02. You will be eating and done, or getting dressed and done. 8:07. You need to be out the door. And yesterday, two days in a row, I was flying down the stairs at 8:07 to slam my headphones on. And that's like <laughs> McNabb. How's it going? And I'm like <sighs> syrup everywhere upstairs. <laughs> who says you can't do it
0: all, McNabb? <laughs> yeah, anybody who says that uh, working at home sounds like a it's picnic. Not,
1: it's not. Yeah,
0: that sounds super stressful. Every, I, would, I every second,
1: it. like the commercial breaks are usually your time to pause. And yeah. And until the kids are gone, it's my time to like just make sure. Things are going as they're supposed to be going. They you go from fifth so to breathing. sixth
2: gear. You find a whole other gear.
1: Yes. Because
2: you got to fly up the oh, stairs. And then and-
1: yesterday I ate. 802, I realized I hadn't made lunches the night before. Oh, because no. normally my husband does, but he's been was working all through the night. So I was just like, hey, everybody, grab a juice box. I'm like putting cheese whiz into bread, smashing it into oh, really? the lunch kit. They're like, Do we have any like what about the veggies? It's like nothing healthy. Grab a candy. And they're like, Yes! So just like, <laughs> Let's <laughs> go, go, go. Oh, that's oh, fantastic.
2: <laughs> Can you run some video on this next I time,
1: should, please? I should have had it like streaming or something. Yes, please. So I to welcome to see
0: back to the both of you. And Mackling, you brought a couple of thoughtful gifts for the both of us. You brought me because you're in Croatia, which is the home of King's Landing, the capital city in Game of Thrones. You brought me a nice little uh, Targaryen house, Targaryen badge What's set. What's
1: Targaryen? Is Targaryen the, is
0: the family name of... Like uh, a crest? Yes. So it, yeah. So the the crest is uh, it's like the, the the dragon heads. Oh, says fire and blood. That's so cute that's of you, the, Greg. The, the, the house name, the family name of Daenerys Targaryen, who is the the dragon queen.
2: Well, they had these T-shirts, but it seemed as though you had to pick a team.
0: Yeah, and I didn't know which team you were on. What so. team are you on? I like a House Stark, but Targaryen is a close second. So Oof, hey, that's close. a great choice, man. That's and then, nice. I, and
1: then Greg uh, picked up some coasters for me, but they're actually. You said they combined the, my love of two things: knowledge. I thought it was a clean house. No, I wouldn't know. <laughs> knowledge and wine. I, I know. <laughs> I'm joking. You know how I hate. You know how I hate messes. That's yeah, what I yes. thought you were thinking. Mm-mm. No, that's not true. Yeah, yeah, knowledge. So it was these cool little coasters that have uh, some history of Croatia with different people who've invented things like the necktie,
2: the the cravat,
1: the cravat,
2: the cravat. That's was, from Croatia. Yes. And yes and it's uh the French turned that croat into cravat and the uh, the French the French military had uh, neckties and they wanted them worn, worn very specifically and they celebrate the cravat in uh zagreb on the weekend they have uh, a marching of the cravat essentially and it's this uh group of volunteers and they get dressed up three on horse there's a drum parade and their cravats are very well pronounced and uh feature part of the celebration so as now, they march through the old uh, city of zagreb look
1: how much you learned when you were there holy cow that's
0: it that's all i got uh, okay well so i just used it up all in <laughs> the first a segment you're done you're good all right, well then let's move on from that, but welcome back, Greg, welcome back, McNabb. Lots to discuss today, including the the crash yesterday that had the intersection of Regent slash Nairn and Panet tied up for... All of the morning drive, and then we later learned that the two pedestrians involved, who were initially taken away in critical condition, died. So we're going to be talking about that. We uh, Di- Diana Fox all spoke with a couple of eyewitnesses who were sitting at a red light, mm. and uh, what they described is is quite harrowing. So and you
1: think of all the like the different ways crashes impact people. And you could be in it, you could be the victim, you could be the driver, and then you could just be walk like witnessing something. And they'll they're also waking up to a tough morning.
2: I went through that audio uh, backwards and forwards about four or five different times. and the things that we're going to play with you are, are for you are a little bit difficult to hear. But what was more difficult to hear were some of the things that we couldn't play for you because they're just too graphic in nature. So we'll give you a warning, uh, another heads up before we play that audio for you about 6.38 this morning.
0: Also, as we continue to look at the health system in Canada, yesterday we talked about dental care, on Monday we talked about prescription drugs, and today we're going to be talking about mental health and the gaps in our mental health system. And I know, Greg, this is uh, an area of, of passion for you. The headline at globalnews.ca, Canadians split on covering mental health services through provincial health plans.
1: Well, you say that till you're, until you're looking for it, I think. No
0: yeah. question about it.
2: And uh, yes, uh, I look forward to speaking about this a little bit later on. This is, uh, as you mentioned, Brett, something that's very important to me. St. Bonavis Hospital Foundation just yesterday released uh, a video uh, with uh, some clips of the story that I've shared openly over the last several years in an effort to bring awareness to mental wellness and unwellness, uh, not only in our province, but in our society as a whole. And uh, yeah, we, we should have that discussion about access because access is critical. We, we've spoken about the crystal meth crisis. We've spoken about our addiction and our love affair with alcohol. And when we decide to break the cycle and we decide that we're strong enough to get help, we need to know that there is going to be a, a listening ear on the other end of the phone, on the end of, other end of a text or an email. When you reach out for help and you ask for help, we need to be there for those that are, are looking to change things in their lives and change things for themselves.
1: If you think this is something that doesn't apply to you, just we have, I have a clip that we're going to play uh, just after seven where a startling statistic that I, I think will shock many people into thinking we're, we're we are not doing enough here at all.
2: Yesterday morning, traffic in that part of the city was snarled with the closure of the intersection of Panet at Nairn Avenue or Regent Avenue as it uh, changes names at that intersection. For most Winnipeggers, that was the extent of their involvement in the crash that killed two pedestrians. Astra Dirksen, whose car was stopped at a red light when the crash occurred, with Jordan Getty in the passenger seat. They both spoke to Global News reporter Diana Foxall, and I want to give you a warning here. Some of this is difficult to hear.
3: We were coming up from Panic, from the Cavalier side, going back home towards uh, Concordia. We pulled up to Naren and Regent and Panic whatever it would be considered. And we're stopped at a red light. I'm looking forward. I'm looking at the group of three as they're at the crosswalk. The girl starts to walk in front of the other two, and they start walking, and then once she makes it to the median, like right before she makes it to the median, the guy just gets smoked.
4: They were just walking, like, slow, you know? And I was like, whoa, Like just all of a sudden, a car comes out of nowhere. They had the green light, and it just went schmuck. They were walking from like on the KFC side, and they landed up
5: way over on Canada Post.
3: Where I seen one of the bodies fly in the air, and I seen another one of the bodies go under the car, and I seen the car stop very shortly after that and pull over to the side, and then we called nine one one right away after that.
4: It took me about five minutes to like collect my thoughts and like realize what just happened. So it happened just before 12.15 because then there was a an officer that was I guess in the area and I guess maybe he'd seen what happened because he was like right there moments after as I was calling 911.
3: Yeah, there was a lot of traffic and there was quite a bit of cars that just went around the bodies too. It was nerve-wracking, you know, because, like, that's not something you see, really, unless it's, like, on TV or You don't see that every day.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. so you you can uh, just imagine, or maybe you can't, witnessing such an event. That's Jordan Getty. He was a passenger along with Astra Dirksen, who we also heard in that montage of clips and their
0: recollections and eyewitness accounts, Brett. Yeah, listening to him talk about how cars were driving around the bodies. On one hand I can kind of see if you're an oncoming motorist and you didn't see the crash, you didn't know what happened, and you just so you're driving through and you probably go by and you go, What what is going on here? And you keep on going, maybe because you don't know what to do? Like what do I do? Do I stop? Do mm-hmm. I but at the same time it also you I, I kind of hope that i would stop but at 12 20 in the morning maybe you're concerned for your own safety like yeah, or if
1: you're, you're alone yeah like, you know you often wonder what, what what just happened here if you don't know it was a crash as you said brett what if it was something particularly like violent or someone has a weapon you just don't know the scenario but True. but i also think people just are really um, quick to just say okay well someone else is dealing with this so i i'll just move on and, and keep going but the you know you think about the families of the the two victims in that crash then you think about the driver who will who stayed at the scene and is cooperating with the police and sharing what they know and then you have witnesses like that who just horrifying thing to see
2: yesterday's pedestrian deaths are the 7th and 8th in our province in the year 2019 so as we're talking and we're replaying this eyewitness account that's got to be traumatic. And, Loren, you mentioned the others involved who will live with the results and the ramifications of this crash for a long time. Having coffee, talking on the other side of whether we will uh, talk about whether or not we've ever seen anything like this. Has this affected us? And we'd like to hear from you, 204 780 68, have you ever witnessed either a car crash or something like this that you've carried with you for a long time, maybe a loved one or someone you know uh, collapsing? I was in an airport in Washington, D.C. and heard an incredible thud one day and turned around and a man was collapsed. He'd collapsed having a heart attack and and he hit the ground so hard on the concrete. And it's a sound that I will never, ever forget. That was over a dozen years ago. It's, uh, it it can be something you carry with you for a long time. Did he die? I don't know. I had to get on my airplane, but the, there was an AED. Someone fortunately knew how to work it. Ambulance and, and uh, medical folks were on the scene very quickly, fortunately.
1: That's often the case I find when you, when you talk about the people who were driving around, these victims on the road, you know, you drive by crashes all the time and you just keep going because the police want you to keep moving and clear the scene and they don't want you to stop. And I often think afterward, you know, you drive by something that might look like a minor fender bender and then you hear in the, hear in the news later how tragic or how awful it was that someone may have died. And then you also drive by those ones that it looks like, oh my gosh, how could ever, anyone survive this? And then you don't know the outcome, like this gentleman in the airport and you're always left wondering, is everybody okay? Like as you pass, you just keep hoping. I hope everybody here is okay.
2: Absolutely correct. I agree with you very much. And uh, one of our listeners here, please include a trigger warning when talking about trauma. People need to know what will be talked about so they can opt out of listening if it may trigger them. We did our best to do that at the beginning of the segment before we played that audio, but that just highlights the fact that there are folks out there who have had traumas that they carry with them all the time, and they have to be concerned about what will trigger either a memory of that event or push them into a, a dark or uncomfortable spot.
0: Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, we are going to talk now about something rather serious that has to do with that crash yesterday at Panit and Nairn slash Regent, and we just want to give you a heads up that some of this could be traumatic if you have experienced something like this in your life. Because we we wanted, we wanted heard audio from two eyewitnesses who were sitting at that red light when the crash happened, when the two pedestrians were struck. They were sitting on Panit facing northbound they were at a red light they were coming out from the cavalier inside and they were waiting at the red light when they saw the crash and listening to them describe what they saw they were both horribly shaken up and how could they not be Uh, so we just wanted to give you a heads up as we continue with this discussion because i have seen crashes i've never seen anything bad i know i i almost saw something really bad i remember God, this is probably like 20 years ago. I was driving up main, northbound. Can't remember how far it was. It was just, I don't know. Greenbrier, that's on Main Street, right? Sure is. So I th- I think it was around there, and there was a guy on the median who appeared to be potentially drunk, and he started walking into traffic. And there was a pickup truck that was beside me, and this truck had to swerve horribly to miss this guy i thought for sure he was dead i thought there's he's gonna hit this guy but he didn't almost hit me as a result uh but we all managed to escape that situation unscathed including the pedestrian Mm -hmm. but that could have been a lot more horrific and no doubt like that memory still sticks with me so i'm curious uh i'm glad that i didn't see but i'd be curious to know how it would have stuck with me had the outcome of that been different so um Anybody ever seen anything that they, you know, Cameron, for example, what have you seen?
6: Uh, I've seen two cyclists get hit. Um, once here in, in Winnipeg on Henderson Highway and another time in Calgary. Uh, the cyclist had just decided he was just going to start crossing the road uh, whenever, wherever he wanted. And so uh, my dad almost hit him, hit on the brakes. And the and it was three lanes of, of traffic. The next car to our right, uh, we were heading uh, northbound. Uh, this was, I think, just just at Johnson, and uh, so the next car stopped when we stopped. But the third one on the other side uh, just absolutely clipped him. So the the kid just got up, he started uh, yelling at the driver, and then he just collapsed, and uh, the ambulance had to come up. But uh, I, I I I don't I'm pretty sure he was he was okay. And the other time, <laughs> the other time was um, a guy uh, uh, another cyclist getting hit when I was in Calgary, and he was biking on the um, sidewalk, Mm. and uh, a a driver had rolled into a, um, was rolling into a stop and looking to turn right, and he, and they both actually kind of hit each other. Uh, The guy's bike went through the windshield, and uh, the guy picked up the bike, threw it, at the guy, uh, at the at the driver, completely smashed up his car. I had to do a police report and all that kind of stuff. I was late for work because I had to check the whole thing out. So, did it uh, change
1: anything for you in terms of driving or never well, taking a bike well, on the sidewalk or well, something I think, like that?
6: Is, isn't it true, like right right turns, like uh, are, are some of the most dangerous? Like, so I mean, uh, yeah. I, I definitely make sure that I I'm, I'm checking, checking yeah all the time yeah so yeah it's. You know, I'm happy that I didn't see any. You know, anyone get seriously maimed. Like, like this was just absolutely horrible there in Panit. So, um, yeah, but I've I've seen people get uh, get hurt. Yeah,
0: Jeff Braun, you've been in a crash.
6: Right?
7: I've been in a couple, and luckily neither of them were as serious as any of these crashes. The one was one was definitely my fault. I was I think 17 years old, so it must have been 93 or so, trying to turn onto the perimeter from McGillvary, and this other car was coming the other way from McGillvary, just trying to cross the perimeter and come into the city, and I hit them head-on.
1: Oh, man. And they were going
7: like 80 at the time, and our cars both just bounced across the intersection there, but they didn't flip over or anything, and there were four seniors in that other car who were, they were okay. The, the worst part was two of them were driving the other two to the airport because they would flown in for a funeral, oh, and the guy oh. whose funeral it was, it was his car, or his widow's car, I guess, at that point, and I wrecked it. So oh, that man. one was bad. Uh, and then a few years later on Waverly— Right where they're building the underpass, right before the tracks, a deer hit me. It <laughs> ran into the side of my car, which is uh, – that was the most terrifying thing because I heard it snort in the split second before it crunched into my front left fender and its head whipped back into my windshield and it went four legs up in the air and I saw it land and it was like –
1: that that was that one was
7: bad for the deer.
1: Are you more cautious now at all, or did, like, I'm for... very
7: wary of deer, especially I live in Charleswood too, right? Yes. So I see them constantly. So. Yeah, yeah. How yeah. often
0: do you have to drive through the Assiniboine Forest, like uh, on Grant, or is it Roblin at that point? Yeah, oh yeah. Okay, and I see them daily, every day. Wow, Just boat. Okay.
2: We've got an interesting text message. We've got a ton of them here. We'll try and weave them through the conversation either in this segment or throughout the morning. But this one just caught my attention, guys. I'm a PTSD survivor, so I'm sensitive to many things. It is important to talk about trauma and mental health injuries, but it is also important to give people the opportunity to either participate in those conversations or excuse themselves in order for them to feel and be safe. So thank you for that. And... Uh, 45 years ago, I was standing at my front door looking out my window when a car came racing around the corner up on our front lawn and then did a U-turn. And my two best friends, who normally I would have been walking to school with, we just we used to switch kindergarten. You'd go in the morning yeah. for a while, yeah. part the of afternoon. the year, and then the mm-hmm. afternoon. I think we'd just done the switch. And I would have been with my two best friends, and I saw them get hit by this guy as he took out... 20 feet of fence, um, it was super horrific. And uh, I don't, we, we moved not long after that. I don't remember ever talking to those boys again.
0: Wow. Yeah. I Actually, that reminds me once when I was a kid, I, I want to say seven or eight, I was playing football on the street in front of my house. And uh, there was a car coming. So, you know, everybody says car and the kids all scatter and get out of the way. And for whatever reason, I couldn't decide what side of the street I wanted to wait on. <laughs> so, like, as the car was approaching, well, how, I... Sorry, how
1: old were you, do you think? <clears> like, like seven like, or Yeah, eight. you're little. You're still... You're just in that kind of running around, indecisive
0: mode. Yeah. So, it's, I decided just as the car was approaching to dart right across course, yeah. in the street in front of it. And this woman got out and uh, she wove a tapestry of obscenity at me because they were shaken <laughs> up too, right? They were mad because yeah. they almost killed a kid.
1: That's I think that's what I, like, I, every time I back out of the driveway, even at 3.30 in the morning, there have been times where I've gotten out and looked, just like, why would a child be out in my driveway at 3.30 in the morning? But the neighborhood scenario you just paint, Brent, like about the near misses that you have and kids running around and the backing up. And and I will, like, if it's summertime, they're all out playing. I'll yell, I am backing out of the garage neighborhood. (laughs) Like, because there's all these little, I swear to you, I do it because you live in that moment of like, I don't like the the awful feeling anyone would have in a no fault collision, but you just couldn't help yourself. It happens. And then the, the rest of your life and that family's life is just gutted.
0: You can continue to weigh in at 204 We are getting a lot of texts on this, and we will get to them. We thank you very much for your feedback. You can also email Mackling at CJOB.com, McNabb at CJOB.com, or Brett at CJOB.com. Jeff Braun, thank you. Kim Poitras, thank you. If your child needed help, how much would you be willing to pay to get it? How long would you wait to find it? Those are just some of the questions
1: we're asking this morning as we look into Canada's mental health system as part of an ongoing series we've been doing this week on CJOB just about our health care and what we expect to get from it from, from our tax dollars. Jeff Warner is the father of three children. His oldest has been in and out of acute mental care for years. His son's first suicide attempt was at just eight years old.
8: He uh Attempted uh, suicide and other forms of self-harm multiple times and have been hospitalized a few more times for that um, We it was it was a pretty rough time. It was a very hard time It was hard on us It was really hard on his siblings. It was really hard on him because uh, in between his rages uh, He was filled with remorse and shame. Uh, he hated himself. He he, he was fully aware uh, of what he was doing and, and yet he was unable to stop it and um and then in November of uh, 2017 uh, again he was suicidal uh, and that led to a month-long stay at a a youth jail in Toronto Uh, and then uh, he came home uh, things rapidly fell apart again uh, and by April of 2018 uh, we actually had to separate the family for safety reasons.
1: So at that point Jeff's wife actually moved in with her family and their two older kids While Jeff worked to get the help for Brian, a year ago, another suicide attempt had them scrambling yet again.
8: He spent a week inside of the ER uh, waiting for uh, specialized mental health care in Toronto. There was nowhere for him to go. All the beds were booked. All the places were full.
1: So the good news for this family is that since then, they've been able to get Brian into a long-term care facility. And the key in that conversation is long-term. Just like all the other issues we've been talking about, Brett, with, say, meth or drug use or substance abuse, long-term facilities are at a premium. There's just not enough of them to go around. So they're incredibly grateful that they've largely been able to finally get him the help he needs through the public system. It's also taken them years to get that help. Fardos Hussein is the National Director of Public Policy at the Canadian Mental Health Association. And he says one of the biggest issues is that we're just not diagnosing mental health problems early enough, which means people aren't
9: getting the help they need until it's almost too late. If we adequately fund services at the community level, where we can get people, we can get people the recovery and supports they need earlier, instead of waiting until they're in crisis for us to intervene, that's problematic. It's the analogy of before stage four, I don't know if you've heard it, but it's, we don't wait until people are in stage four cancer to intervene and treat them, but why do we do that with mental health? Why do we wait until people are in crisis and they're at the emergency department and saying that they're thinking of taking their lives, that they were like, okay, now we're going to try to get you some help.
1: So some of these are extreme cases when we talk about people having suicidal thoughts or or challenging issues like that. But there's so many other mental health issues we know that millions of Canadians are dealing with. And if you're still sitting there thinking that this doesn't apply to you, the policy director you just heard from, from the Canadian Mental Health Association, wants you to hear this.
9: Most people are saying that by 2020, depression will be the leading cause of disability in Canada. We also know the cost of the economy, almost $42 billion, right? So these are numbers that we already know, but it's what are we going to do to address it? Are we going to not put supports in place? Because those numbers are just going to get greater and greater and we're going to lose money. There's a huge return on investment if you're taking care of the mental well-being of your country and your citizens and your people. There's a huge return on investment, so it's not only the right thing to do, it's also a business case that actually, if you invest in this, you're going to see return on investments down the road, not just in health, but also in justice and employment and education.
1: So I just want to repeat that, that by 2020, there's estimates that depression would be the leading cause of disability, why someone can't come into work, why they're struggling at school. And so that applies to a whole host of us, and I liked his idea that you don't wait in a cancer diagnosis to treat it at stage four, you get it, your goal is to always get it early. And as much as we say, okay, we're going to treat mental health like our physical health, we're still not. We're not getting to the root or or even diagnosing things early enough so that you don't have a situation where somebody is now suicidal and then struggling to just stay alive.
2: We have so many conversations on this radio station amongst ourselves with regard to early detection of cancer and screening and all the different things, the research that's going into making sure we catch cancer before it goes too far, before anybody has to deal with it at a stage four. And when it comes to our mental health, we've done such a great job of breaking down the stigmas, to have have the conversations, but it's opened this Pandora's box to a certain sense. To a certain extent, we are in a situation now where people are more aware when they're in a situation. They are more prepared and more likely to ask for help. But are those resources going to be available when they do so? That's the big question that we have to ask and answer.
0: We want to find out who is Jerry Schwartz.
2: Yeah, Monday morning, very early, I was getting on the plane in Zagreb, Croatia, and was uh, on my uh, Twitter machine, even halfway around the world. I'm addicted to Twitter. Yep. Uh, news broke that Onyx Corporation had made an offer to purchase WestJet Airlines for $5 billion. The fact Onyx Corporation has made moves to purchase airlines in the past is somewhat interesting. Lots of layers to the start story. The fact they are paying $31 a share for WestJet is even more fascinating. But for those of us in Winnipeg, how many realize the gentleman at the head of Onyx Corp is in fact a former Winnipegger? Who is Jerry Schwartz? Kelly Geraldine Malone is with the Canadian Press. She wrote an article about Schwartz and she shares her insight with us now. Good morning, Kelly. Kelly. Good morning. Thanks for taking some time with us. So that is really the basic question I think a lot of Winnipeggers might have. Who is Jerry Schwartz and what is his connection to Winnipeg?
5: Well, I think you've got <laughs> to go straight to we're in Winnipeg here. So you have to think of neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And he actually grew up in River Heights. So he was his father um, was in World War II and then later took over his own father's auto parts dealership in the city. And, uh, you know, Schwartz has talked in multiple speeches and to different people that I spoke with about how he actually worked in that auto shop growing up. So he's 77 years old. So think about that when he was about 10. So maybe 65 years ago, if you were around, you might have had Jerry Schwartz serving you something in an auto parts store in Winnipeg.
2: Isn't that something? So, uh, how long did he stay in Winnipeg, and what was behind his meteoric rise, or his or his rise to one of the wealthiest uh, people in Canada?
5: Well, he truly did get his start in Winnipeg. Um, he got two degrees at the University of Manitoba: uh, a Bachelor of Commerce and a Law degree. And then he articled under Israel Asper, which I don't think I need to explain much about that here in Winnipeg. So. You know, his first law gig was under Israel Asper, and he was practicing corporate law. In one speech, um, he was saying that, you know, he just knew that he needed something else. He wasn't sure quite how to do it. So he decided um, to go to Harvard University, and there he got a Master of Business Administration. And after working on Wall Street under some of literally the biggest names, like Bear Stearns and Company, Um, is when he and Izzy decided that they were going to start Canwest. And Canwest was a juggernaut and, uh, you know, obviously became a juggernaut in um, media communications. But he came back and, and Canwest had his main office in Winnipeg. So he truly was in Winnipeg to start his family, to start his career as a businessman and, you know, to really kick things off. And in 1977 was when Canwest was started and it dissolved their partnership, Izzy Asper, and uh, Schwartz's partnership dissolved in 1984. I spoke with Asper's son, who said that, you know, like, obviously in business, there's some a couple rocky feelings. But in general, they stayed very close as friends and family. And the money he took from Can West is actually how he started Onyx Corp. And he brought Winnipeggers with him.
1: You write that uh, Schwartz is one of 45 Canadians to make the Forbes list of billion, billionaires. His net worth pegged at $1.6 with a B. I'm just going to say that. And I'm curious, where in this, is there a love of aviation? Or is this more just about the business and having a really good business sense, Kelly?
5: Well, you know, I talked with a couple of his friends about that. By no means can I go into his brain or his <laughs> business acumen and, and try and speculate what that's about. But a lot of his friends said that he wasn't pushed by ego. Um, they said that was a big thing for him in the boardroom. He was patient in the boardroom. He was willing to wait for a good deal. They said that, you know, obviously now Onyx has this major capital behind it um, that can help it push it uh, further. You know, obviously in 99, he uh, attempted previously to get Air Canada. So maybe there is a little bit about wanting a, an airline in there somewhere. But, uh, his friends attest that it is, you know, for him, he would make that decision because it makes good business sense.
2: Well, you know, hearing that he, he's looking for a good deal, I guess maybe that ties back to his Winnipeg roots as well, because uh, we're, we're famous for that. Uh, I was just in uh, Europe and, and visited some incredible places that were fortified. Uh, fascinated to learn that Toronto's Rosedale home is nicknamed Fort Schwartz, of all things. It's- Wild.
5: Um, if you've been to Toronto's Rosedale neighborhood, you know this is mansions. Like these are the biggest names in Toronto, the biggest names on Bay Street. You know, these are the people who live in this area. And even there, his is a mansion among mansions. It's, it's assumed to be Toronto's most expensive house.
1: So even with all that, his connection to Winnipeg, as you mentioned, is strong. Does he still get back here often or what, you know, in terms of? keeping those hometown roots, which we all like to brag about, is still important for him, obviously. Well, I
5: spoke with uh, Arnie Thorstenson, who's a founding director of Onyx, and actually still spends most of his time in Winnipeg, um, even though he is on, uh, he's still very involved in Onyx. And he says that, you know, a lot of the time, uh, he does come back to Winnipeg when he can. Um, most of his family isn't here anymore. But a lot of the time, more of what it is, is he takes that, um, lessons that he learned through a childhood in Winnipeg and growing up in Rosedale and, or not Rosedale, sorry, River Heights. And, um, you know, working in his father's store and articling under Izzy Ather, he takes those lessons and you'll often hear him referencing Winnipeg when he's making a business deal or talking to his board. So I don't know, that warms my heart a bit knowing that, uh, The lessons from our streets are in the top boardrooms around the
2: world. Fascinating stuff, and I know I've used that word at least three times in this discussion. But Jerry Schwartz, uh, of course, we would be remiss if we didn't mention his wife is Heather Reisman. She's founder and CEO of Indigo Books and Music, so a power couple to be sure. Kelly, thanks for sharing this, and uh, thanks for uh, bringing to life. Really, uh, Jerry Schwartz is is not known to a lot of people. uh, he's, He's somewhat private as well, is he not? Yes,
5: he is. And, that, you know, I read a lot in the making of this of people attempting to write profiles of him who ran into roadblocks. And um, I was lucky enough that I'm reaching out to Winnipeg, so they open their hearts to me right away uh, and and want to chat. But, um, you know, there is a lot of questions that people have about probably his life and his wealth, and I'm not really the person to answer it. But from what I know is when it comes to business students, he does open up to them and apparently volunteers a lot of his time, um, you know, in different business schools around the country. And he is known as a philanthropist. He's donated millions of dollars to universities, to um, different uh, organizations. And, you know, he was uh, a major donator to the Human Rights Museum.
2: Yeah, $100 million most recently to the University of Toronto and their ambitious uh, artificial intelligence program there. So uh, just a, a terrific look
0: at uh, Born and Bred Winnipegger. Thanks once
2: again, Kelly.
5: No worries. Have a great day.
0: All right. That is Kelly, Geraldine Malone joining us live on 680 CJOB from the Canadian Press. And I just was looking for Jerry Schwartz's home in Toronto mm-hmm. that you talked about. I, I haven't found the picture yet, but the home is said to be, the property is said to be worth $28 million. Oh, yeah.
1: It, it's it's a funny, it's an interesting area. I actually remember taking my grandma through there on a tour when she she sadly broke her hip when she was visiting in Toronto. But as she recovered, I was like, you want to go see some houses? And I heard the look on her face as we drove through that neighborhood, you know, Minidosa, Manitoba. Does not have mansions like that, <laughs> let me tell you. Well,
2: apparently neither does, uh, neither, does Winnipeg. neither does Toronto. Yeah,
1: no, it's crazy.
0: Greg Mackling is back from Croatia today, just in time to introduce our next guest. Bob
2: Irving, of course, the voice of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers here on 680 CJOB. Uh, seventh or eighth year calling Play by Play this year. Bob, I always forget. <laughs>
10: I've kind of lost track. It's uh, it's a little higher than that, though, Greg.
2: <laughs> great to hear your voice, Bob, and uh, great news from the CFL and the CFLPA this morning.
10: Yeah, it's interesting how these things work out, isn't it? A couple of days ago, I heard some rather negative uh, prospects about how this would go, that it might uh, drag into the start of main training camp, but when the pressure builds in a negotiation process, it's interesting how it, you know the two sides can reach an agreement, and that's what's happened. A tentative agreement, it'll be approved for sure, so we have labor peace in the CFL. My guess would be it's a four- or five-year deal. So it's great news for the Bombers and all the fans of the Canadian Football League.
2: I know a lot of people were wondering what the players really wanted out of this. Was there enough money uh, to drive some some serious uh, increases in terms of salary cap in the CFL? But I think a lot of people might be surprised to learn that one of the things the players were really looking for was uh, some health care coverages uh, once they retired. Because after one year after, their, uh, after retiring from the game, are leaving the game, uh, CFL players uh, lost that medical coverage, yeah. correct,
10: Bob? That's right. Yeah, long-term health care, Greg, was a, was a priority for the players. And that cost money. That cost the team's money. So, you know, money's always at the bottom line of these things. But long-term health care... Uh, I think they'll have achieved that, and we don't have the details yet, but my guess is the salary cap will go up at least a little bit. So the players will get some gains, and obviously it's, a, it's an agreement that both sides are comfortable with, to a point anyway.
1: When we get to this point in the year, Bob, I know how people who are really into the Blue Bombers feel. Is that same excitement translating onto the field already, and, and does it help if this contract talk might be done so they can just focus on the play and the football at hand?
10: Oh, yeah, this is a breath of fresh air, Loren, for everybody involved. Uh, Rookie camp starts today at 3 this afternoon, and uh, until this agreement was reached, we didn't think Matt Nichols and the veteran bomber quarterbacks would be at rookie camp. My guess is now they will. I'm not sure about that. Uh, But my guess is they'll be out there and they're allowed, the veteran quarterbacks are allowed to attend rookie camp. So every player in the CFL will be breathing a sigh of relief and have a little more spring in their step today, for sure. Uh,
2: uh, Bob, of course, Kelly Moore was down in Florida for the Blue Bombers free agent camp and uh, several signings coming out of that. Anyone you are particularly excited about seeing later on today and uh, once they get on the field?
10: Well, there's a guy named Lucky Whitehead. If for no other reason than anybody (laughs) called Lucky uh, is a guy you have to have at least some curiosity about. He's a kick returner uh, and uh, played with the Dallas Cowboys and really showed some stuff uh, before he left the National Football League. So I'm curious to see him. And you know, the three Mexican players and the player from Germany. uh, You know, how uh, will they fit in? Are they even close to being able to compete with? Players at this level, I'm curious about that and I think we'll find that out pretty quickly because they'll be out there today at rookie camp
0: and I understand the bombers also looking to uncover a full-time kick returner uh, we heard a little bit of that in cam's 725 sports
10: well that's right and they had a player last year uh, Charles Nelson who uh, you know showed some form in that regard and he'll be among the contenders there they'd like to have better kick returning this year last year that was a weakness of their team for sure.
2: Uh, Bob, and I know we got to run here. Brett, real quick, though, i got to uh, tell you, Bob, that when uh, we were in Croatia, news that Chris Matthews had re-signed with the Blue Bombers, uh, hit the bus. People were very excited about that. Uh, good signing, yay or nay,
10: Bob? Oh, yeah, it's a great signing. A big target for Matt Nichols. Uh, the Bombers haven't had a guy of his stature, his physical stature, catching footballs for a long time.
0: Bob Irving joining us live on 680CJOB, the voice of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers on day one of Bomber Rookie Camp. Bob, thank you very much for this. Anytime, you guys. Hey, our 845 guest is on Global News Morning right now, Sarah Brooker. She's a United Way Winnipeg volunteer. We had her on... Uh, last month to talk about the Winnipeg Nightlife and Lifestyle Awards, and something funny happened. She's wearing a T-shirt right now. It's black with green lettering that says "Conscious Kindness" for the United Way campaign. It's Conscious Kindness Day. But at first, the letters were black. I couldn't see what it was, and I thought, "Does your shirt like light up?" And I guess Loren, would that, they have t- had to turn off the the green screen well, filter
1: on that part of the studio. There is no green screen, so I don't know if just the camera settings were weird. But you're right. Like if you, I never wore green for. Uh, years anchoring, and actually, when I ran into Heather Steele the other day, she's like, "I feel like every time I see you, you have green on because you're so excited to like <laughs> bring that color back into your wardrobe because you never get to wear it." So I don't, I don't know. Good yeah. technical
0: question. Yeah, well, I have to ask her about it because they just switched it mid-interview. <laughs> That's <so>. kind of neat. <laughs> I didn't see that. <laughs> Yesterday's two pedestrian deaths are a huge part of a conversation today.
2: Pedestrian and cyclist safety are topics of discussion all over the planet. Something called Vision Zero has come to the forefront. Winnipeg City Councillor Janice Lukes is a proponent of Vision Zero and bringing it to our city. And Loren, you just spoke to Councillor Lukes a few moments ago.
1: And she says this idea is very much about coordinating with engineering, coordinating with your city officials, police, and educating the public so that we can all do better. Because yesterday's death brings the number of pedestrian deaths total to eight, if I'm correct. In, in Manitoba In Manitoba, this which means we're on pace, you know, to be well over half of our road fatalities are happening to pedestrians. We're not even in the
4: very busy season of biking and walking and, and uh look at how many deaths we've had it's it's just heartbreaking and and we can we can do a
1: lot more than we're doing. okay, the names in the title vision zero zero deaths for pedestrians and cyclists and so many people out there will say that's not possible
4: Well, they may say that and that just goes to show you we need a better education pro- program because we can't we don't have a goal right now on how. What percentage of collisions do we want to see reduced in the city of Winnipeg this year? We don't have a goal. Once We have to set a goal. We have to work towards a target. We have to design our transportation system for human error, whether you be in a vehicle or whether you're walking.
7: In
2: 2018, our next guest ran for mayor in the city of Toronto on a progressive visionary platform that included addressing the housing crisis by building at scale on city owned land and implementing a rent to own program. It also proposed neighborhood-based crime prevention through the development of community well-being plans for each neighborhood in the city. And here's where her platform ties into our discussion today. Redesigning city streets to prioritize vulnerable users such as children, seniors, pedestrians, and cyclists. And... For those that may not recall, perhaps her boldest vision was to tear down the Gardiner Expressway to build a new walkable, transit-oriented waterfront neighbourhood community. Jennifer Kiesmat joins us on 680 CJOB now. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning. Thanks so much for taking some time with us. I know you're feeling a little under the weather today, so uh, double kudos to you. Uh, this whole idea of keeping cyclists and pedestrians safer, it's clearly not something exclusive to Winnipeg or Toronto.
4: Well, it's not something that is exclusive is exclusive to any city. You know, this has been a problem in cities across the entire world, and the good thing is we know we can change our cities because other cities have already done it and this is the great thing about vision zero we know what has worked elsewhere the reason that amsterdam is such a safe city for cycling is because in the 1970s there was a crisis of pedestrian deaths and there was a huge outcry streets were redesigned priorities were changed speeds were reduced And as a result, this is simply no longer a topic of public conversation in the city because the streets are safe for the people who are most vulnerable, meaning people who are walking and for cyclists. So the good news is this has been fixed elsewhere and the opportunity in Canadian cities is to take these lessons learned from elsewhere and to make our cities safe too.
2: We often hear from those in our community, we had a debate, you, you may have been aware of it, uh, as to whether or not to open Portage and Main, our, one of our busiest intersections to pedestrian traffic. It's been underground for 40 years now. They built a an underground uh, pedestrian walkway, uh, complete with a mall, etc. And a lot of people will yell when we start bringing Examples like Amsterdam, like Toronto, like New York, and what they've done in Times Square and Madison Square Park, all over the city where they've implemented traffic calming, um, different strategies, parks, and, uh, and of course, uh, creating uh, cyclist priority and pedestrian priority corridors. They'll say, well, we're not those cities. What do you say to those folks that, that can't wrap their head around adapting something that's implemented and working elsewhere? Every one
4: of those cities that you just listed wasn't that city until they chose to change. Winnipeg is absolutely no different from any of the cities that you just listed. The only difference is the design of the streets, and streets can be redesigned absolutely anywhere. Really, it's a choice about the kind of city that you want to have, and what Vision Zero is about is recognizing that people will make mistakes in the urban environment. And the question is, should you die for those mistakes? You know, should someone die because they jaywalked? Or should, should a child die because their ball rolled out into the street? And we know the easiest thing to do to begin addressing ensuring you have a safe city is something that can be done with a stroke of a pen. It's reducing speeds. We know that when we reduce speeds that it gives both the driver time to react and it gives the pedestrian time to react. So reducing speeds is the very first thing that can be done, and that can be done in any city. It has nothing to do with being a prairie city, being a a really dense city. It just has to do with a choice that can be made by leadership. Now, the redesign of streets, I can show you 20 streets in Toronto or 20 streets in New York that look very, very similar to streets in Winnipeg. And the only reason why there are now safe streets is because they have been redesigned. And a lot of those redesigns, they don't require big engineering studies. They don't require spending tons and tons of money. We know, for example, that we have made cyclists safer just by putting planter boxes down along the corridor. There's no environmental assessment that's required. Just buying a planter box and separating where the cars are from where the cyclists are right along the street using planter boxes. Our safest cycling infrastructure in Toronto was actually designed that way and it was done as a pilot. So there's lots of things that can be done that don't really cost much money. Uh, Not that spending money should be an issue because we're talking about safety in the city. But there are things that can be done immediately. They don't need years and years of study or years and years of redesign. Put those planter boxers on the streets. You can create bump outs at intersections so what that means is making the intersection narrower so that the spot where the pedestrian crosses is actually a shorter distance because one of the challenges in winnipeg just like we have in scarborough or north york or etobicoke in toronto is big wide open streets so in the short term making those streets narrower is a really important part of making it easier for pedestrians to get from one side to the other So my point is, you know what? Winnipeg is very special. But when it comes to this, Winnipeg isn't that special. There isn't a street in Winnipeg that I couldn't find you an example of in another city in North America or even European examples. The difference is those streets that are safe have been adapted and changed in order to prioritize people who are more vulnerable instead of prioritizing moving cars really fast.
0: What kind of a speed reduction are we talking about here?
4: Well, it depends on the kind of street that you're talking about. But for neighbourhood streets, we've slowly been moving. And my campaign platform was about doing this much more quickly. We've slowly been moving from having a 50-kilometre-an-hour speed limit on residential side streets to a 30-kilometre-an-hour speed limit. And really, it's a question of asking, what matters more? Should people be able to move fast in their car? Or should children and the elderly and young people and families be safe walking on their streets. And if you choose safety, then the outcome is to reduce the speed. It's it's pretty straightforward. So, you know, that's something that can be done very quickly that has a proven impact. We know that when a pedestrian is hit at 50 kilometres an hour, they are less likely to survive than if they're hit at 30. But when a car is going 30 kilometres an hour, there's also just because of the, uh, the fact that there's less momentum because that car is moving more slowly, it's easier to stop if a cyclist accidentally swerves in front of you or a child darts out in, in, into traffic. It's easier to stop at 30 kilometres an hour. So that's actually a starting point in a city, is to reduce uh, on those residential side streets. But then, of course, many of the fatalities that have been taking place in Winnipeg are actually on arterials that are really wide. Some of them are... Uh, four lanes or six lanes across and they're wide lanes. The first step, start narrowing those lanes and you can do that with paint. Just changing the paint on the street, putting in some hatching, meaning striping to show where cars don't belong and to create more space for pedestrians and start with paint. It shouldn't stop there, but that's something that your city council could do this summer to begin to save lives.
2: Jennifer Kiesmat, thank you for this, for the access, and we appreciate your vision as well. My pleasure. Thank you. Jennifer Kiesmat, who ran for Mayor of Toronto. She's launching the Kiesmat Group along with her team of city building experts. She has a podcast as well, Invisible City Podcast. You can check that out at invisiblecitypodcast.com.
11: Happy anniversary, baby. Got you on my, my- Happy anniversary, baby. Got you on my, my. Because I've actually
0: never
2: heard this song before. It's a great, I like song. it. Isn't it Little River Band? Yeah, from that's Australia. Right. Yeah,
0: that's correct. Well, it is. I dig it. Yeah, it's the anniversary of the strike,
2: one <laughs> hundredth anniversary of the strike. But eighty-five years after that, maybe a date more important Welcome to on. us here it in this room
1: depends on and where you're coming from. But I went to Forte and said, "Do we have any anniversary songs?" Because it is Brett's anniversary of his marriage with CJ. but
0: <laughs> 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 Brett. Anniversary. He said,
1: I do 15 years ago today to radio.
0: 15 years. I can't believe that. You yeah, were just a you. child. Yeah. Really? Got in a, relative right, terms? Like right out of school. I got a job right out of school uh, here at CJOB. And I, I admit that I figured I'd go to CJOB and get some experience and I don't know, go on. Yeah. And then I just stayed. <laughs> Mostly because I'm lazy, I think. No,
1: okay. that's a sign of a strong relationship. We praise
0: your laziness, Brett McGarry. <laughs> yeah.
2: This right. is a celebration of your laziness. This is really... Is this what it's come down to? Is this what we're, we're really... Summarizing this whole ordeal. As I guess
0: so. Yeah. All right, I just didn't I didn't apply anywhere else because I was lazy, and uh, and it turns out I liked working here, so it worked out in the end. Well, I think but they
1: they've all liked having you, and by they I mean the listeners and us as well. So congratulations, that's well, amazing.
0: thank you very much, Loren. It's, uh, it's a, I think it's a feat to be a, at one radio station it's a for. A feat to be
1: anywhere
2: long. for that long these days. Let's be honest about it. Okay. Well, hey, thank you very much. Uh, Fifteen oh, years. Oh, he's cool. being modest. He wants to move on now. Yeah. (laughs) All right, he doesn't like the spotlight. Let's (laughs) indulge him and and move along. Happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary. General Strike.
1: Happy
2: anniversary. (laughs) Somewhere
1: somewhere we have poor Steve Lambert of the Canadian Press listening in. Oh, no. (laughs) Sorry, Steve. Wondering what he signed up for. But, Steve, we're bringing you on because it's a pretty monumental day. 100 years ago today, the Winnipeg General Strike began. Good morning. Good morning. All right, so tell us about what precipitated this. We had the uh, 8 a.m. was the walkout. Is that how it went? 8 a.m. 100 years ago today? Well, it was supposed to begin
12: at 11 a.m., but it started earlier when uh, telephone operators uh, decided that, uh, well, they're not going to show up for their shift that started earlier that morning, so they were the first to walk out, and it it really spread across the city, um, bringing the city virtually to a standstill for six weeks as uh, 30,000-plus workers, unionized, -unionized, non-unionized, you know, menial labor, manual laborers, and others just walked out, and and uh, most of the city services uh, ground to a halt.
2: Steve, obviously at this juncture in Winnipeg history 100 years ago, uh, Winnipeg was one of the fastest cities uh, fastest growing cities in North America, uh, maybe on the planet. It was a, a critical time in the in the history of our city not just because of the strike but because of where we were in terms of growth economically and in terms of our population.
12: Yeah, I mean, we were the third largest uh, city in Canada at that point. And um, what happened in Winnipeg uh, led to sympathy strikes in in other cities as well and uh, got the attention of the federal government and and business leaders across the country because uh, there was a fear that this was some sort of Bolshevik uh, uh, revolution. Um, The the strike organizers were accused of being, you know, foreign agitators, even though they were, uh, you know, Anglo-Saxon names for the most part living right in Winnipeg. Um, and, and really, it, it sort of shook the establishment because, again, when you have 30,000 people from, from all walks of life walk off the job, uh, it, it was uh, very shocking at that time to see that sort of uh, mass movement, that, that sort of solidarity.
1: So it started as a sympathy strike for construction unions, if I'm if I'm uh, remembering things correctly, Uh, but it transferred into all different departments. At the end of the day, though, the walkout, the folks on the side of the walkout, they didn't technically win.
12: No, they didn't. In the short term, uh, it was a defeat for the for the labor movement. Um, They were fighting for the right to collective bargaining, the right to form industry-wide unions, and, and generally the, why this spread so wide is because living conditions at the time were, were pretty poor for your average worker. The people had suffered through the First World War. Um, the jobs were few and far between, and, and those that were available, uh, did not pay well. Uh, the people were living in, in squalor. If you look at, um, at a lot of the working class neighborhoods, in the North End, at that point, and and closer to downtown, they were uh, people were living in in shacks, and it was, <laughs> it, I think, it was shocking, even uh, you know, to people in that era. Um, some of the living conditions that people were in. So that's that helped spread it. Uh, that helped spread sympathy for the strike and, and helped get other people to join in. And, Loren, as you mentioned, um, it, it, the strike ended. Uh, there was violence. Uh, one, one worker was uh, shot and killed. Another died later of, uh, of gangrene from a gunshot. Uh, dozens were injured during the final clampdown. Uh, by uh, police and special constables uh, six weeks into the strike the strike ended people returned to work it looked like an immediate defeat but if you look at what happened later um, there was a royal commission a federal royal commission that looked at the strike and pointed the finger at um, at the poor living conditions and working conditions that laborers faced and it said the, the the capital class had to had to give up more because there was there was prosperity among business owners and and certain people in in society but it was not uh translating to the people that were working to produce the goods that uh, generated the wealth um and one of the biggest impacts was that some of the strike leaders like j.s woodsworth would go on to um Run for Parliament, be elected to Parliament uh, under the Labour Party banner, and and he and a few others would later help form
0: the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, the CCF, and that of course would later become the NDP. Now, Steve, a hundred years later, why is this event? Why does this event still continue to ring so loudly for so many Winnipeggers? Uh, you know, the city looks back on this often with pride
12: yeah well i I think for the labor movement and and uh, for uh, for the labor movement and others it, it 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 was an act of unprecedented solidarity when you had the streets filled with striking workers, uh, their families their supporters i mean you had, you had thirty thousand people walk off the job, but there were tens of thousands of others who would who would parade with them or line the streets in in shows of support and um, it 's it's very rare in Canada. You know, for a city of about 100 and what was it, 150,000 people at that point, uh, for that size of crowds to show to show up, and if you look at pictures from the time, you see Main Street just packed with people. Uh, For that type of movement to erupt um, seemingly out of nowhere, or seemingly very suddenly at least, uh, is is something that people in the labor movement take a lot of pride in.
0: Steve Lambert from the Canadian Press joining us live on 680 CJOB on this 100th anniversary of the General Strike in Winnipeg. Steve, thank you for the time. We appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Now, our guest, who joins us now live in studio as part of the Winnipeg International Writers' Festival Collaborative Spring Literary Series. He was born in Weyburn, Saskatchewan, but raised in Winnipeg. And did did we just learn that... He went to school with your dad. We went to the same high school
2: as my dad at the same time. We haven't uh, connected them officially, but Grand Park High School in the era of the late 60s, and you graduated from high school in 1970, 70. you
11: said, That's right? right?
12: Perfect.
1: Before we get to the book, I have to ask, because outside the studio, and now it's making sense to me, maybe based on where you're born, but I'm not sure, you saw our colleague wearing the Winnipeg Blue Bombers blanket, and you said some of your best and worst memories you uh, know what About the Blue Bombers? Is that because you're a Riders fan?
11: It's bad. You're bringing back dark and dangerous <laughs> memories on a springtime morning. I was in. You guys are all too young to have this trauma in your background. <laughs> but I was in the stadium when the Bombers lost to Saskatchewan. Oh, no, 1972. When Jack Abinshan, God help you, I remember Jack Abinshan's name, <laughs> kicked a field goal on a second try. Mm-hmm. When the Bombers kicked a missed field goal out of the end zone. I can't believe I'm talking about this. And we gave no yards on the kick out of the end zone, and the riders gave him a second chance. The refs called no yards, and he made it. And it was a blizzard. It was savagely cold weather, and I'm sitting there in the stadium as a kid watching that game. And you will realize, because I'm talking about it here, that memory has never gone away. I guess
0: not. The pain. Whew. And our guest name is Guy Gabrielle K. He is an international best-selling author, and he will be at McNally Robinson tonight at seven o'clock to introduce his latest book, A Brightness Long Ago. So, Guy, thank you so much for joining us and for recounting that wonderful Blue Bomber story.
2: Oh, yeah, I included it on the. Uh, I host a podcast with Doug Brown, former Blue Bomber Doug Brown, and I included that in the top fifteen moments in Blue Bomber history, and it was the only negative. One, but it was such an incredible moment brother, with the kick back and forth, in and out. Anyway, you and I could maybe do a podcast after this
11: on that <laughs> story. But Let's talk about something cheerful, well, guys.
2: Let's talk about <laughs> your road to uh, becoming a part of the literary world. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, what is your connection to him?
11: That where actually creates another Winnipeg connection because J.R.R. Tolkien's youngest son's second wife, this is getting convoluted, was a Winnipeg woman. And our fathers knew each other. Her father and my father were medical colleagues at the mall medical group, which is long gone now. And her dad introduced us when I was an undergrad at U of M. And Christopher Tolkien, not J.R. the son, Christopher, was a don at Oxford. They were visiting her parents in Winnipeg. We were introduced. And I was her classic bright young student who fit his paradigm at the time for how he thought the editing of the Silmarillion would be, which is the idea of the senior academic working with the bright student to put something together. And so he invited me to come over to Oxford for a year to work on that book with him. And that was the year that crystallized my own realization that what I really wanted to do was be a writer. And as a Winnipeg kid with all the prudence and pragmatism of the prairies in me, what do you do when you realize you really want to be a writer? You come back to Canada and you go to law school. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. <Of course. laughs> yeah. Not everybody, you know, yes, as one yes, does. Yes. It's not as
1: interesting reading when you're reading law articles and all the rest. A little, yeah. bit, a little bit dry. So then you did go to law school? Yeah. And then where did you say, this is not for me? Mm -hmm.
11: I'll tell you something about that. Uh, People ask me all the time if I regret the law degree, the law experience, and I don't at all. It was, for one thing, it got me involved with radio drama for many years. I ended up working as a writer, producer, director for CBC radio drama series called Scales of Justice, which dramatized famous criminal trials in Canadian history. And that paid the rent when my first novels were getting untracked. When I was first started to write, I used to get on an airplane about 48 hours after we put the last show of a season in the can and fly somewhere far away. I was on the south coast of Crete twice. I was in New Zealand once, hiding from absolutely everybody and writing seven days a week in order to get a book done in the interval of time we had, before the next radio season was starting. And my evil friends, Winnipegers mostly because we are <laughs> unfairly funny sometimes, my evil friends would say, you could have gone to Sudbury. If you wanted to hide from everybody, you <laughs> could have gone to Sudbury. <laughs> you wouldn't have known anybody there. But at, between Greeks and Sudbury, it's a very tough call, right, Ooh, yes, We're balancing difficult. it here, aren't we? Yeah.
0: Yes, So the book then, A Brightness Long Ago, uh, how would you classify this? Like, what kind of writing do you like to do?
11: I'm sorry, once more?
0: How would you classify this book for those of you want to sell this book to our listeners?
11: This is God Help Me, my 14th novel, which means I've been doing this for a long time. Um, This one is inspired by Renaissance Italy, and it's... What fascinates me, many things fascinate me about that time and place. But one thing is, we think of the Renaissance as the most sophisticated, cultured, urbane time, Michelangelo, Leonardo, the Medici, all of the glamorous elements of that time and place. It was also the most extraordinarily violent, savage, dangerous period with Petty despots, leaders of city-states with just about uncontrolled power over the people in their cities, some of it acting out in extremely ugly ways. In fact, the book begins with an assassination planned of one of those remarkably evil, I'll use that word, figures in a city-state based on history. So what I wanted to do in this book. Which give readers a little bit of the taste or flavor of how extreme beauty, extreme sophistication, can coexist with extreme violence and darkness. They're not either or, they're often fitted together. And that's the sort of thing that can make for genuinely dramatic storytelling, if you do it right, to bring those two things together.
1: So the the backdrop is very real, like in terms yep. of the history. Always, but then the characters themselves are, are allowed to play in this world that we that happened. But yep. it's but that's a fiction.
11: The fiction for me is I spend uh, at least a year and a half, sometimes twice that, doing my reading and research, corresponding with uh, historians who've spent their lives dealing with a given period. Do you travel of there
1: as well? Like overseas? Yeah, yep.
11: Yeah. Yeah. And that research period is my favorite part of writing, Lauren. The because I'm just learning stuff. I don't have any responsibilities yet. <laughs> I'm not on duty. I'm just reading. I'm corresponding with interesting people. I'm making notes. I'm making a coffee, or if it's four o'clock, I'm making a Negroni or something like that. And then at some point, the Winnipegger kicks in again, And he says, you're a lazy human being. You have no justification for taking up oxygen. Start writing. And I can't resist that voice for very long. And the voice, curiously enough, sounds a lot like Jack Abinshan. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs>
11: the, the, the kicker of the Saskatchewan,
2: uh, who actually went in the Canadian Football Hall of Fame last year. Um, I was actually just last uh, uh, Saturday before Mother's Day, just this past Saturday, in Palmanova, Italy, which was a city-state, and I was in the church uh, from the 15th century, and the, the, the gilded uh, everything in this church, and the and the frescoes, and all the history, and was lucky enough to have a, a, a native Italian showing me around, and then we started. talking 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 about Michelangelo and some of the other uh, amazing uh, parts of Italian history and how And how Napoleon stole all their treasures, and and of course, they now live in the Louvre. That's why they're in the Louvre, exactly. And so when you think about that beauty and the violence and the the changing of hands and the fighting between the city-states, it it is amazing that all this beauty, almost by accident, has been preserved and still exists for us today. Because it was
11: raided. It was raided and stolen. There's a really interesting thing about where we're going here, and I'm I'm going to make Jack Abinchand the theme of of this morning. Uh, One of the undernotes of the book, one of the places it started, was thinking about memory, which is what we're talking about. We're talking about memories of Winnipeg. And my principal protagonist in the book is a man of about 50, looking back at a couple of years in his life when he was in his early 20s, and Fifteen years before I started writing this book, my youngest brother, who's a psychiatrist, told me the most extraordinarily interesting thing, which is there is a neurological, biological reason why our memories of the years when we were 15 to 25 or so are so vivid. There's actually a developmental reason why we remember so well the song we danced to in our high school grad, or why we skipped the high school grad, those memories are there for a developmental reason. And so when I remember that, that's memory again, 15 years after when I'm beginning this book, I think, you know what? I'm really securely grounded in having a protagonist who so vividly remembers certain people and certain events from 25 years ago. And that's part of what I'm saying about enjoying the research. This wasn't active research, but it was a piece of information that had come to me that let me feel secure in what I'm doing with my story. I love when that happens.